Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places like Dartmouth, Massachusetts, Patterson, New Jersey, Parker, Arizona, Cape Town, South Africa, Bologna, Italy, and Chandigur, India. Thanks for being here, and if you're new to the show, the concept is simple. It's all about the people and stories behind the machines. So if you like what you hear, don't forget to tap that follow button and leave me five stars and a quick review. And of course, not all podcast apps give you that feature for whatever reason. But Apple Podcasts is still the number one platform, followed by Spotify, and both of them allow you to rate what you listen to. So if you can't leave a review where you're listening right now, this is a good reason to give Apple Podcasts or Spotify a try, because reviews help new listeners discover the show, and it's just one more way you can support the podcast. You can also check out the Instagram page and the YouTube channel. Just search for Horsepower Heritage on either of those platforms. All right, well, today is kind of a first for the show because it's all about aviation, which is a subject that's always fascinated me. And honestly, I have yet to meet a gearhead who doesn't have an appreciation for airplanes, too. So it's something you'll be hearing more about on the show from time to time. And where better to start than to tell you the story of what's probably the most famous aero engine in history? the Rolls-Royce Merlin. It was developed on the eve of World War II, and it powered some of the most famous aircraft ever built, as well as boats and tanks, and in the years since, even some specially built cars. And as you'll see, it helped turn the tide of the war. It's the story of the mighty Merlin, and that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf. And they've got you covered, whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. May 1940. British expeditionary forces are pushed back across France and Belgium by the advancing Germans. Hundreds of thousands of British and French troops crowd into the port of Dunkirk, awaiting evacuation by sea. France falls in late June, and Hitler is master of Europe. The United States remains neutral, and only Great Britain stands in the way of Nazi domination. But conquest of the British Isles will require an invasion by sea, and Hitler knows he cannot accomplish this objective without air superiority. England's best hope lies in her small but formidable fleet of fighter planes, namely the Hawker Hurricane and the Supermarine Spitfire, both powered by a liquid-cooled 1,000-horsepower V-12 engine, the Rolls-Royce Merlin. Rolls-Royce had been building aero engines since 1914. Their first was called the Eagle, a sturdy V-12 produced for many years in various versions. The Eagle began a naming tradition for the company, and it was followed by engines called the Falcon, Kestrel, Hawk, and so on. So the Merlin, designed in 1933, was named not after a wizard, but a bird of prey. Actually, the Merlin was originally known as the PV-12, for private venture, 
since it was entirely funded by Rolls-Royce. But they saw that the development of the Royal Air Force's next generation of fighter planes was underway, and they would need a more advanced and powerful engine. It was a time of great progress for aviation. But by and large, it wasn't the militaries or the governments of the world that were pushing that progress. Instead, it fell to a small fraternity of daredevils and adventurers. Pilots on both sides of the Atlantic became famous in the 1920s as barnstormers. Women like Poncho Barnes and Bessie Coleman. Men like Wiley Post and Roscoe Turner. Using military surplus biplanes, they did joy rides and performed in traveling stunt shows that drew hundreds of thousands of spectators. Even Charles Lindbergh had been a barnstormer. So there was a strong public appetite for daring feats of flying. More and more companies began to exploit numerous advertising and marketing opportunities. Oil barons, newspaper publishers, and industrial executives offered international prizes to anyone who could set new records. Altitude, time and distance, point-to-point and cross-country flights, and even pylon racing. There was the Bendix Trophy for the fastest transcontinental flight point-to-point. The Thompson Trophy, a breakneck 10-mile pylon race and the Schneider Trophy for the fastest seaplane, just to name a few. And it was more than just a series of publicity stunts. The real objective was to spur on technological advances in power plants and airframe design. Wood and fabric construction gave way to aluminum alloy. More and more power was extracted from engines. Fuselages on some of the race planes resembled a garfish or a rifle bullet, The streamlined experimental racing planes of the 1930s were at the cutting edge. As Roscoe Turner recalled in 1952, After we had kept the speed development alive over a period of from about 1926, when the uh, military services more or less uh, dropped it up until 1939, over this period, the civilian flyers of the country, just a handful of us, managed to keep it going and keep the manufacturers of the power plants. And of course, the power plant is the limiting factor in most any type of transportation. All this made it obvious that current fighter planes were shamefully obsolete. And the next generation would have to fly faster, higher, and farther than ever before. Those factors also meant retractable landing gear and a sleeker fuselage was necessary and it spelled the end of the biplane fighter. Monoplanes were the only way to go. The first such British design came in 1933 from Hawker Aircraft Limited and their chief designer, Sidney Cam. He was the most prolific aircraft designer in Britain. And just as importantly, he knew how to navigate the bureaucratic vagaries of military contracts. Cam discussed his new airplane project with Rolls-Royce, who were only too happy to help since by that time, the PV-12 engine had become the Merlin, and they were anxious to sell it. Now, the PV-12 prototype had used a finicky evaporative cooling system, which might more accurately be called a steam condenser cooling system. The idea was to take advantage of the greater heat absorption of steam, so the steam would circulate around the engine and then return to the radiators to be condensed back into water, and then the cycle would start again but it proved to be unnecessarily complicated and the large radiators would be extremely vulnerable to enemy fire. 
Rolls-Royce engineers abandoned the evaporative cooling system in favor of a conventional system using pure ethylene glycol, what we know as antifreeze today, that green stuff. But at that time, it was still a relatively new thing. Once that was sorted, CAM's new fighter design incorporated what was now known as the Merlin engine, and in 1935, the prototype went into flight testing. Despite some reliability issues with the Merlin, the airplane gave excellent performance and it was found to be predictable and easy to fly. They called it the Hurricane. I know what you're thinking, it's Hurricane, right? But we're going to use the English pronunciation. It blended the new with the old because, although it was a monoplane with retractable gear and an enclosed cockpit, they did use some time-tested production methods. For example, it had a trussed steel tube framework and lots of aluminum bulkheads and skin panels from the cockpit forward, but the outer fuselage shape from the cockpit rearward was constructed of wooden formers and stringers, and then the tail and the outer wings were covered with fabric. The fabric was draped and stretched over the framework, and then brushed with a flexible nitrocellulose lacquer. This process is called doping, and the result is a tight, weatherproof skin that adds strength and rigidity while keeping the weight to a minimum. Hurricanes were hand-built largely with basic hand tools. In many ways, the airplane was a marvel of simplicity, but the performance was impressive for the time. It was the first Royal Air Force plane capable of 300 miles per hour. They also packed quite a punch with eight Browning 303 caliber machine guns, four in each wing. By late 1937, the Hurricane was operational. Certain problems with the Merlin engine, like oiling deficiencies and cylinder head cracking, had been cured. In fact, the Merlin would soon become the overwhelming choice for British military aircraft of all types, including the Ferry Battle, the Handley Page Halifax, Vickers Wellington, and the famous Avro Lancaster heavy bomber. But the Hurricane was the first. And the second? It was arguably the most famous fighter plane in history, the Supermarine Spitfire. Developed in parallel with the Hurricane, according to the same specification issued by the Air Ministry in 1930. The Supermarine Aviation Works were long known for building seaplanes and flying boats. For years, they'd competed in the Schneider Trophy Race, the prize for the world's fastest seaplane, created in 1913 by a wealthy French sportsman named Jacques Schneider. He'd flown airplanes and balloons, raced boats, and he believed that water-based aviation held great promise for the future of commerce and transport. Beginning in 1927, Supermarine won the Schneider Trophy three times in a row, which, according to the rules of the contest, meant the event was discontinued, and as the winners, they would permanently retain the trophy. Supermarine's winning entries were an evolution of a single type, a stiletto-shaped monoplane on floats that were longer than its own fuselage. It started as the S-4, but the final iteration in 1931 was known as the S-6B, powered by a 37-liter supercharged Rolls-Royce V-12 called the Type R, built exclusively for racing. Rolls put lots of tricks into the Type R, like forged aluminum internals, crankshaft balancing, and sodium-filled exhaust valve stems to improve cooling. The sodium acted as a heat sink and drew the heat away from the valve itself. But even so, the Type R generated tremendous heat. So the S6B's wings and tail section incorporated a sandwiched construction of an aluminum outer skin with an inner layer of corrugated copper sheet. 
with engine oil flowing in between. The floats used a similar principle except that they circulated engine coolant, and all that surface area dissipating heat effectively made the plane one big radiator. A little over two weeks after its final victory for the Schneider Trophy, the S6B set a new world speed record, just over 407 miles per hour. The quiet genius behind the Supermarine Racers was chief designer Reginald J. Mitchell. So after a couple of false starts on the new fighter project, he applied what they'd learned with their racing seaplanes and the Spitfire prototype took its maiden flight in the spring of 1936. R.J. Mitchell's Spitfire design was a lot more complex than Sidney Cam's Hurricane. With the exception of fabric control surfaces on early examples, the elevator, rudder, and ailerons, it was an all-metal monocoque airplane with a stressed aluminum skin and flush rivets for smoother airflow. The wing's thin cross-section and elliptical shape achieved low drag and high maneuverability, but it also left plenty of room for landing gear and machine gun ammunition storage. Many other tiny design features made it highly responsive in aerobatics, but also balanced and well-behaved. And of course, at the heart of the Spitfire was the supercharged Rolls-Royce Merlin. The airplane went into production in the summer of 1936, but unfortunately R.J. Mitchell never saw it become operational, let alone tested in aerial combat. He was battling cancer throughout the Spitfire's development process, and it finally took his life in June of 1937 at the age of 42. Of course, like many others in British aviation, he understood that war was coming. They'd seen the buildup of the German aircraft industry, and although the Treaty of Versailles after World War I had banned Germany from having an air force, they developed airliners, cargo planes, and civil aviation trainers that were basically thinly disguised military types. German pilots were secretly trained for military operations. And two years after Hitler became Chancellor of Germany, the Luftwaffe's existence was disclosed to the world. But by that time, it was too late to prevent further buildup. So it's no surprise that at the same time the Hurricane and the Spitfire were on the drawing board, the Third Reich was doing the same, and word of the Spitfire's impending production reached Germany just as the Reich Air Ministry announced the winner of their own fighter competition. It was designated the BF-109, and it was the brainchild of an embattled 36-year-old designer named Wilhelm Messerschmitt. He'd made some high-profile enemies after one of his earlier designs was involved in several crashes, but the BF-109 would be his vindication. Like the Spitfire, it had an all-metal low-drag airframe and excellent handling. Ironically, the prototypes were fitted with Rolls-Royce Kestrel V-12 engines, but the pace of change was rapid and once the new generation of German engines were available, the 109 saw ever-increasing horsepower first with a supercharged inverted UMO V12, and then a supercharged and fuel-injected Daimler-Benz inverted V12. The BF-109 first saw combat in late 1936 or early 1937 as part of Germany's Condor Legion forces supporting the nationalists in the Spanish Civil War. It was a dress rehearsal for what was coming, allowing the Luftwaffe to fine-tune the 109 and its pilots to become seasoned in aerial combat. Which brings us to the spring of 1940. The RAF was flying from French soil 
but as the German ground campaign closed in on the coast, they eventually pulled back to bases in England. As hopeless as it seemed in France, the inexperienced RAF pilots performed surprisingly well, to the shock of their German counterparts. The Spitfire was essentially an even match for the Messerschmitt, and the chosen tactic was for the Spitz to engage the 109 while the Hurricanes concentrated on the bombers. Losses on both sides were substantial, and it was clear that the Germans had underestimated British resolve. In those final months in the Battle of France, Prime Minister Winston Churchill promised to provide increased fighter support ahead of the German advance. But despite tremendous pressure, Fighter Command's top officer, Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, wisely withheld these planes for home defense. Defying the Prime Minister was risky, but Dowding's decision ultimately proved to be a crucial factor in Britain's survival. The RAF would live to fight another day. Even as the British evacuated at Dunkirk and the Germans peered across the channel at the White Cliffs of Dover, the seeds of doubt had been planted on the idea of a decisive victory over England. The RAF's fighter command would be the tip of the spear. Winston Churchill braced his people for the fight of their lives. What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealths last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. The Battle of Britain began on July 10, 1940, when the Luftwaffe mounted a campaign against British shipping, bombing vessels at sea and striking at port facilities. The Luftwaffe could cross the English Channel in just eight minutes. Hundreds of planes darkened the clear blue skies. Heinkel 111 bombers, Messerschmitt 109s and twin-engine 110s, and the feared Junkers 87 dive bomber, with a siren mounted on its undercarriage that would shriek as it plunged out of high altitude. They would attempt to obliterate the Royal Air Force and the Navy's fleet air arm. Unchallenged control of the skies was a necessity. It was all part of the larger objective to cripple any ability to resist an invasion. And the plans for that were underway. 
codenamed Operation Sea Lion. Day after day, the Hurricanes and Spitz would fly from their grass airfields and climb to meet the enemy. The problem of when and where to intercept the Luftwaffe had been tackled in the years before the war. Once again, it was Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding that anticipated this need, and his early warning and control system gave the Brits an edge. It consisted of three parts. First, a series of radio towers along the coast, codenamed Chain Home, which could detect incoming aircraft. Second, ground observers scanned the skies and made visual confirmation and reporting, and they also tracked aircraft once they were past the Chain Home network, which only looked out to sea. And third, a method of plotting and notification from control centers would keep track of all threats and alert the airfields. When the order to scramble fighters was given, they could be in the air within minutes, receiving radio messages on enemy strength, position, and altitude, and hopefully get the jump on their opponents. Chain Home was the world's first operational radar network. And although the Germans were aware of its existence, they didn't fully appreciate the advantage it gave the RAF. Even though the Chain Home towers were attacked from time to time, the system was never knocked out of action. It was just one of many blunders that went in the favor of the British. Throughout June and July of 1940, flights of Heinkel 111 heavy bombers made raids against airfields, aircraft plants, and other industrial targets. While the Spitfires would engage the escorting Messerschmitts, the Hurricanes went after the Heinkels. The Hurricanes' wooden and fabric construction allowed it to take substantial damage and it also made for easy repairs. Sometimes 20mm shells would pass right through the tail without exploding. But one of its weaknesses was the gravity-fed fuel tank just ahead of the cockpit. Many Hurricane pilots were horribly burned when their tank was hit, and it made bailing out like passing through a blast furnace. One pilot who was on fire accidentally pushed his stick over so that the plane was inverted and he simply fell out of the cockpit. It was only after he was floating down on his parachute that he realized the skin on his face was peeling off from the burns. Now, by 1940, the Merlin V-12 had come a long way. With the addition of 100-octane fuel early that year, both the Hurricane and the Spitfire gained power and speed. However, there was a design flaw in the engine that could spell disaster in a dogfight. In a dive, the Merlin's carburetor would sputter as the fuel in the float chamber was forced away from the pickup under negative G conditions. And when the pilot would pull out of the dive, the carburetor would then flood the engine, often resulting in a complete cutout. By contrast, the BF-109's Daimler-Benz V-12 was fuel-injected, and the Luftwaffe pilots realized they could easily escape by going into a dive, and the enemy couldn't chase them. They could also force a hurricane or spit into a dive and potentially disable it. Rolls-Royce engineers were aware of the carburetor flaw since at least 1938, but the full extent of the problem simply wasn't known until the Merlin saw combat. During the Battle of Britain, pilots learned to work around the issue by rolling inverted prior to diving, keeping the fuel supply from being interrupted in the first place. But later, a simple, ingenious fix was devised by a female motorcycle racer. Her name was Beatrice Schilling, and she was an engineer in the research and development laboratories of the Royal Aircraft Establishment. 
She calculated the exact fuel flow the Merlin needed for full throttle power. Then she fabricated a small thimble-like brass fitting with a hole in the center. The hole metered the fuel flow precisely. It didn't solve the problem of negative G cutout since the float bowl was still vulnerable to sloshing, but it did counteract the flooding problem. Schilling personally rode her Norton motorcycle to airfields all over England and assisted ground crews in the installation of this restrictor, which could be fitted in a matter of minutes and you didn't have to dismantle much of anything. She became a hero to the pilots and her device got a cheeky nickname, Miss Schilling's Orifice. The Merlin also benefited from multiple improvements in the design of the supercharger, and that was due to the work of Rolls-Royce engineer Stanley Hooker. Hooker increased the airflow of the ducting and improved boost pressure with a revised impeller, and then a two-speed gearbox was added. Remember, superchargers are mechanically driven off the engine, and this was a major improvement that allowed the blower to spin at over 25,000 RPM at full power with an engine speed of just 2,850 RPM. Now, when you compress air, you automatically heat it, so it has to be cooled before it enters the combustion chamber. So the supercharger was combined with a pressurized cooling system running a 70-30 mix of water and glycol, not 100% glycol like they did originally. And that allowed the Merlin to produce 1,175 horsepower, and it increased the service ceiling by 3,000 feet which is significant because the 109s were able to fly higher and if you could bounce your enemy from above, you had a distinct advantage in the fight. Rolls-Royce continued to finesse the Merlin throughout the war for better performance at a wide range of altitudes, and it was fitted to scores of different aircraft types, demonstrating just how great a design it was, eventually making 2,000 horsepower. But in August and September of 1940, it was all Britain could do to hang on. Replacing lost planes and pilots was a constant struggle, and trainees as young as 18 were lucky if they got a few hours of flight time before they were sent into combat. The Luftwaffe planes outnumbered the RAF 4-1. to Germany escalated its attacks in September and began to bomb London in revenge for several Royal Air Force raids that had killed civilians in Germany the most recent being in late August when Berlin was hit. This was the beginning of what was called the Blitz, with large areas of London turned to rubble and fires that burned for days. Although the Blitz continued for months, the Battle of Britain would soon be over. The pilots of the RAF and the Royal Navy had held out, and by mid-September, Hitler abandoned his invasion plans. The cost had been heavy. The Royal Air Force lost 1,250 aircraft, including over 1,000 fighters, and there were 1,420 aircrew killed. But in facing a strong and determined enemy, it truly was their finest hour. Meanwhile, Rolls-Royce knew the war was far from over, and they had to expand their production capabilities. So they turned to the United States for help. At first, it looked as if the Ford Motor Company would handle the task, but Henry Ford declined to build war material for a foreign nation. So the Packard Motor Car Company took on the challenge. Packard was no stranger to aircraft engines, having built many during the First World War. 
But even so, it was a monumental undertaking. Over 14,000 separate parts went into each Merlin. First, they had to redraw all the engineering blueprints to conform to American standards. Samples of Rolls-Royce-built Merlins were disassembled and every part was carefully examined and measured. What their engineers discovered was that Rolls-Royce was hand-fitting every component. If something didn't fit quite right, they would machine it, file it, or hammer it until it did. But this method was exactly the opposite of what was needed in mass production. Packard needed to achieve a level of precision that made all parts interchangeable. So whether it was a piston or a camshaft or what have you, their workers could take a part from a bin and fit it to any engine on the assembly line. There was also the problem of basic nuts and bolts. Naturally, the Merlin used British standard threads and dimensions, but the tooling for that was available nowhere in the United States. So Packard had to make their own British standard fasteners in-house. They also solved that negative G fueling problem once and for all by using a new Bendix Stromberg pressurized carburetor. And they improved the crankshaft bearings for greater longevity. Packard also made a running test of every V1650 on the stand, and then every one was disassembled, inspected, and then rebuilt. And there were hundreds of other small tweaks that Rolls-Royce probably could have done themselves, given enough time and resources. Meanwhile, the Packard plant in Detroit was duly expanded and reconfigured for Merlin production. Within a year, they were up and running, and eventually they built 55,000 Merlins which Packard called the V-1650 because it was 1,650 cubic inches. The Packard Merlins went into the Avro Lancaster bomber, but it was also destined to power a new fighter, created because of a request from the British government to North American aviation in Inglewood, California. Now, back in 1938, when England was planning for every supply contingency in the event of war, North American's president, Dutch Kindleberger, was asked if he could build copies of the Curtis P-40 Warhawk, which at the time was the only operational fighter that would meet British needs. Kindleberger wasn't interested in taking up the manufacturing slack of his competitor, Curtis. So instead, he told them he could design and build a much better fighter plane. The British Purchasing Commission agreed, and just 102 days later, the XP-51 was ready for flight testing. The date was September 9, 1940, the height of the Battle of Britain. The U.S. Army wanted to call it the Apache. But three months after the prototype rolled out, the British Purchasing Commission announced it had given the plane a different name, Mustang. The first batch of Mustangs wasn't delivered until February of 1942. And ironically, it was designed by a German immigrant named Edgar Schmude. It was a sleek, all-metal beauty, powered by an American-built 1,710-cubic-inch Allison V12. But the RAF found that its high-altitude performance was disappointing. One of Rolls-Royce's test pilots thought that the Merlin might be the answer and they found that the latest Merlin with its two-stage supercharger did the trick. Although the United States entered the war in December of 1941, it wasn't until late 1943 that the U.S. Army Air Forces received their own Mustangs in England. Early examples retained the Allison V-12, but later variants were powered by the Packard-built Merlin. The Mustang was indispensable as a long-range fighter escort, 
protecting the bombers on their missions deep into Germany. By the time the Mustang arrived in the European theater, the Luftwaffe was in a defensive posture, and Germany's industrial capacity was being hammered around the clock by American bombers during the day and the British at night. The tide had turned. Yet had it not been for a few airmen in the summer of 1940, outnumbered and exhausted, it might have turned out differently. And their fight was made possible by thousands of others working together to produce the mighty Merlin and the planes it powered. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. Don't forget to follow the show, leave me five stars, and a quick review. Please consider supporting the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash hpheritage. You can donate as little as $2, which helps keep this thing going, and you've got to admit that's a pretty good deal. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, February 8th, for a story about a dream racetrack and how it became a reality. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.